This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. project at the Spark Teacher Education Institute based out of Southern Vermont. And Indigo is now based in Atlanta, where I am, Seattle, Morocco, Southern Vermont, and Western Mass. Find us at Indigo Radio on Instagram or Facebook and download a previous show on SoundCloud, Apple iTunes, and Spotify. Last week, another Indigo host and Spark faculty, Chris Liebensee, sat down with me to talk about teaching poetry, and as Chris says, the liberation of ourselves and our communities. In addition to being both a host and on Spark faculty, Chris is also teaching at a public school in Springfield, Vermont. Thanks everyone for listening. All right, Chris, thank you for being part of the show with Indigo Radio. You're also a host yourself and a Spark teacher. If you could start by introducing who you are and also um, in that, can you tell us what you teach and where you teach would be helpful. Great. My name is Chris Levensee. I teach at Springfield High School in Vermont, southern middle of the state, a town of about 8,000 people, uh, formerly um, an industrial town that has lost its industry and like many towns along the river and other places, um, dealing with all the impacts over many decades of that. Uh, I teach high school social studies, I'm currently teaching a class called Immigration Migration and U.S. History, and I also teach a class called 
the history of mass incarceration and a class called China Korea Japan, among others. So uh, community action and a couple other things. So I'm um, in the social studies realm. And you have a couple things to read. So you could just go ahead and introduce what you're reading and either tell us a little bit about it or after you read it, why you chose that in particular. Great. And I, I think the readings, um, two of them come from what I've had my students read and we talk about. And the first one I'll read is um, one of my favorite poets and writers, Pablo Neruda. And he's writing, and this connects to my immigration, migration class, but also U.S. history. Um, we've been looking at the Roaring Twenties, the so-called Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression and uh, um, the Gilded Age and um, that time period of industrialization in the United States. And this poem, um, Pablo Neruda, when the trumpet sounded, everything was prepared on earth and Jehovah gave the world to Coca-Cola Inc., Anaconda, Ford Motors and other corporations. The United Fruit Company reserved for itself the most juicy piece, the central coast of my world, the delicate waste of America. It rebaptized these countries, banana republics and over the sleeping dead, over the unquiet heroes who won greatness, liberty, and banners, it established an opera buffa. It abolished free will, gave out imperial crowns, encouraged envy, attracted the dictatorship of flies, Torrio flies, Tacho flies, Carias flies, Martinez flies, Ubico flies, flies sticky with submissive blood and marmalade, drunken flies that buzz over the tombs of the people, circus flies, wise flies, expert at tyranny with the bloodthirsty flies came the fruit company, amassed coffee and fruit in ships, which put to sea like overloaded trays with the treasures from our sunken lands. Meanwhile, the Indians fall into the sugared depths of the harbors and are buried in the morning mists. A corpse rolls, a thing without name, a discarded number a bunch of rotten fruit thrown on the garbage heap. Can I ask I a my... question about that one? Sure, sure. I, I was curious if you used that in class and what was some of the learning and <clears throat> I'm particularly interested about the imagery of flies and what is said about that. Hmm. Flies in particular, I think, I think the, um, for my U.S. history class, they were, talking about and making connections and asking uh, questions about um, some of the companies listed, Ford and Anaconda and Coca-Cola, and they knew some of those. And we had talked a little bit about United Fruit. And so they got an idea of, or they've had an idea about kind of what happens to the world in terms of if your motivations are for profit or for people. So that was part of the the conversation and connecting this to kind of worker struggles in the United States and connecting it. We saw kind of corny, but this movie called Newsies uh, where newspaper boys went on strike in New York city. But in that movie, the newspaper giants Pulitzer and um, Carnegie were using the newspaper to promote and talk about uh, the war um, against Cuba and Spain and, and the kind of taking over those, former colonies of Spain. And so there was a direct connection to what Neruda is talking about, the the next step after that war that made kind of Pulitzer and all those other people 
you know, increase their profits by talking and writing about war and promoting it, et cetera. This was some of the real world stuff. And so they um, kind of got, they got that connection around the big newspapers wanting to sell newspapers by talking about war. And then this next piece around uh, there are some impacts to what happens to that. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't people actually, no one really necessarily addressed flies in mm-hmm. that. I didn't think about that. It's, I, it was something that just struck me. And, and as an aside, I still know every word to Newsies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> they they at first were like, I mean, they they loved it at, at the end of it. And at first, I even tell them like, this is a musical. And they're like, no, we don't want to watch a musical. And uh, But there's there's a ton of lessons from this Hollywood movie from this particular time period about uh, workers and worker struggles and stuff that we connect and the people and stuff. So yeah, that's great. It's fun. It's useful. That's great. Well, you said, is there another poem that connects to that one? Is that what you said? Nope. There was a, all right. I misheard you just then a couple other little <clears throat> pieces to this. And um, one of the other companion pieces to this, as we connect um, different eras in history, there was um, an article in, that was, well, I'll just read it. It says, why the roaring 20s left so many Americans poorer. It says in August 1929, Ladies Home Journal. And we talked about kind of the marketing to women and the kind of new technologies and new things happening. And so um, this was a useful thing for us. It says in, in August 1929, Ladies Home Journal published an article titled, Everybody Ought to Be Rich. In it, businessman John Raskob told Americans that if they invested $15 in the stock market every month, in 20 years, they would could have $80,000 or over a million dollars today. Raskob insisted that almost anyone who is employed can do this if he tries. For wealthy white Americans like Raskob, the Roaring Twenties was a time of immense economic prosperity. Yet for most Americans, it wasn't. Low-wage jobs paid an average of $25 a week for men and 18 for women. So if low-wage workers had followed Rebsco's advice, they would have been placing most of a week's earnings in the stock market every month. In fact, in, income inequality increased so much during the 1920s that by 1928, the top 1% of families received 20, 24% of all pre-tax income, and 60% of families made less than 2000 a year. The income level the Bureau of Labor Statistics classified as the minimum livable income for a family of five goes on to say is W.E.B. Du Bois observed in a 1926 essay, we have today in the United States, this is in 1926, cheek by jowl, prosperity and depression, side by side like your mouth and your cheek. And so, again, it was really, I think, the students were able to pull out a lot about what the perception of the world is and perception of our country and the perception of kind of businesses and business what it does and doesn't do and then the real world impacts on people and workers and Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that you or what I was thinking about is that you talked about both Newsies which is a movie I grew up watching and I loved it because I loved I loved musicals and I loved it was fun movie to watch like I inspiring and Mm -hmm. I I remember really liking it. And then when you were just talking about the Roaring Twenties, my connection to that as a student was The Great Gatsby. 
and what I learned. And I, I think about, I like, I think about both those two Yuzis and Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby was one of my favorite books. I like loved for a long time it was, but I wasn't at all thought to think critically about either of those things. So my experience of watching Yuzis was about the music and, but I, I wasn't thinking about workers or sort of maybe some real historical things behind it. And then same with The Great Gatsby. Like I didn't, a book that's still taught often in schools. Oh yeah. <clears throat> which I would say that's fine to do, but it could be taught in so many different ways. And so I definitely didn't grow up thinking about income inequality with the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, we looked at, um, as we moved in, you know, the next decade of this too, the Dorothy Lang pictures and, but in, in the era of the Newsies immigration and immigrants and the, you know, I would say a large majority of American workers in big cities, particularly in New York, the, the students were really struck by the conditions they had to live in. And there's a whole series of photos of, you know, living under train tracks, living in apartments with 10 people and hanging your socks over the stove and living in like little corner sheds where the trash is kept and you're hanging in a hammock over above it and stuff. And you can say it and then seeing the pictures too helps really, really drive home the, the conditions of, of people. And I, and for me, the, like there's a continual link of um, looking at the conditions of workers and humans in the world. And the, I would say the contradiction to the, what we, are presented with, and you could bring that right to today, the, whether it's a social influencer or every, anything else, the housewives of whatever, and any other thing that the world that we're presented in and we aspire to, and, and then the lived experience of the majority of people. Would your students be or are shocked by some of the images of poverty that is happening right now? Um, I, I think they would be shocked in, yes, I think they would be shocked, but I, I think there would be, you'd as you pull it apart, thinking about are those choices that they made connected to say drug use or being lazy, et cetera, or mental illness, I think would might be a, some of the range of what they would attribute it to versus uh, getting a, a health bill, right? A doctor bill that forces you into all kinds of, different conditions that would be shocking. I think they would be shocked by who is there, right? That if their perceptions, I think would generally be around somebody who has some quote deficiency in some way or, mm. or um, problem in some way and not the average everyday person being in extreme poverty. I think that that would be maybe a better way to describe it. Okay. Does that makes sense. Or? It does. I think I'm, Thinking through, I mean, you're also living in Vermont where there's increasing homelessness. And I just read a story about Vermont that the amount of overdoses have tripled, I think it was. So mm. Vermont continues to deal with, of course, like this drug use and, and overdoses from drug use. Yeah. Like many places here in Georgia, that's a, a big thing too. There's a lot of parallels around that with Georgia also and Vermont. And I was thinking about how your students, if you're learning about the Roaring Twenties 
and thinking about like in income inequality, or you said you were looking at those, uh, what's her name again, Diet? Dorothy Lang photos. Dorothy, yeah, that, is it easier to have empathy and even more kind of crystal clear understanding of something that is in the past than like looking at what's happening in Vermont now. I think that's like a question for me of like, because mm -hmm. I, I agree that with some of the work I'm doing, there's a huge amounts of stigma on poor, particularly I'm working with women who are pregnant and using substances that, so there's incredible amount of stigma and, and also what you were saying of like, what choices do they make or not making? And why aren't they doing this? And why can't they just quit? Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting to me to think about like who and why do we have like compassion and understanding and when do we, when do we not? Mm. I mean, I, th I think that they can have sympathy and empathy and understanding for people of that time period. And, but I think it is a stretch to bring it to today. And it's so deeply ingrained that bootstraps mentality and again, bad choices and bad families. And we talk about eugenics. We talk about racism as, and as reoccurring themes that we see and how does it look in this era, right? And so they can very much look and there's, there's all kinds of stuff about Vermont and the, they'd have these pageants about what babies are supposed to look like, right? And um, real Americans. And there's all these phrases that they look at from the past and go, this is ridiculous. How could they have these things? And and when we start to bring it to today, there's a, a real resistance to make that connection. I think it will come <laughs> and it has to come at some point, but I think the we are so taught to um, kind of both villainize and, and individualize the poverty and drug use and everything else that it's really hard to overcome that. Yeah, I agree connection. with you. Yeah. Well, I think we've been, I've been using, again, these, what are the reoccurring themes? And if, and the past allows us to kind of ease up and, and maybe break down some of that resistance. Like you're seeing it manifest after reconstruction or in reconstruction, and you're seeing it in the, the Gilded Age and industrialization and the roaring 20s and the Great Depression and stuff. It keeps going. Why, why would it be any different today? Right? It, it becomes harder to explain away those reoccurring themes and from past history it didn't just stop mm -hmm. um, so right but it's it's a there's real resistance and from families and administration and fellow teachers and even within myself around this mm -hmm. you know on the day-to-day -day. Mm -hmm. and i find in my immigration migration class there's a real strong uh we looked at we saw, we watched a movie called the swimmers you may have seen that on netflix and these two girls who are facing all kinds of bombing in their town leave Syria on a boat across the Mediterranean and they're professional, well, not professional, but they're swimmers in terms of they compete and they're hoping to go to the Olympics and their dad wants them to go and, and the boat starts to fill up and they help swim and pull this boat, you know, into Greece and make their way through Germany and or to Germany and they become they find a German coach and they, during this particular time, the International Olympic Committee started a uh, a group for, I, I forgot what they called it now, but it was like the migrant team or something at the Olympics that were people from all over the world um, who competed in the Olympics. And 
so that was kind of the premise of the film. And we were looking at, uh, again, trying to, there's a real strong idea that the people come here because they're lazy. They become here because they're bringing drugs and want to do that. They're coming here to America has everything. And we, we really have gone around the world and looked at some of the conditions that have forced people to move. And then we went back and talked about how many millions of, or thousands of years have people migrated without any kind of borders and, and again, what kinds of changes have happened. And it's, it's still really hard to get to have empathy for hmm. uh, people that are migrating asylum seekers, uh, refugees, any of that. It, it's still the narrative around um, they're bad, they're dangerous. We've get, we've got, no matter what, we've got to have some borders come here legally and stuff. And so it's a struggle. And it, yeah. And it's coupled with a really deep dehumanization of certain groups of people. And of course, those are all people of color for sure. But I, I was thinking about, because I know you're going to um, bring in some of the Gaza stuff too. Like there, it it also, there has to be that piece of dehumanization to capture the the justification for real, like what we're seeing, some real like draconian, dr- draconian measures at the borders or... <clears throat> things that are spouted out by politicians or blame put on like, well, these people are creating the crime. So when we watch the swimmers and a couple other, they can have empathy for this individual case, this person, this, these two girls, you know, who were portrayed as sweet and nice and, you know, had their issues and stuff, but, um, or some war that was happening or some environmental catastrophe on an individual level, they could say, yes, um, when you pair that with what we have connected at the United Nations and that we will take care of anyone who has a reasonable, uh, reasonably fears for their own life or safety, right. That we are obligated to be responsible under the United Nations um, charter and other things. Then it becomes a little bit more, wait a minute. You mean we have to actually kind of deal and take care of and help these people. And it becomes a lot more, uh, they're going to take my stuff and they're going to cause crime and, and yeah, intimately connected to, to kind of race and racism and mm-hmm. the narratives around particular groups. And yeah, it's a hard balloon to kind of pierce surprisingly. Yeah, yeah for sure. Instrumental of Free Palestine by Low Key. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio. I spent the hour with Chris Levensey, also an Indigo Radio host and faculty of Spark Teacher Training Institute. Chris is also a 
teacher at the Springfield Public Schools in Springfield, Vermont. And we're going to continue with the rest of our conversation uh, with Chris reading some excerpts and we'll talk a little bit about our hopes and and once again thanks for joining us today. We'll also I will also in the show notes put all of the links to the readings that Chris has brought to us today. Again, I think about I think part of the question in this is what are some hopes for the future and both in my teaching, um, I hope that we, as you mentioned, and you know, both humanize and empathize with people in the world is a, a really basic hope that I hope comes out of classrooms. Um, and on a bigger level, I hope that we become very, very active and um, participate in the liberation of ourselves and our communities on a local and worldwide scale. And so I think in some ways I'm trying to work on the humanizing and, and empathy piece. And then what are people already doing around this? What are the lessons from groups that are working around this and have been working through this both historically, but presently. So yeah, there's a book called cracked up capitalism that I'm reading. And um, this it's an interesting piece that I when thinking about. It says there's a quote at the beginning. There's a, a book called the ministry of the future for the future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it says, but early in the 21st century, it became clear that the planet was incapable of sustaining everyone alive at Western levels. And at that point, the richest pulled away into their fortress mansions, bought the governments or disabled them from action against them, bolted their doors to wait it out until some poorly theorized better time, which really came down to just the remainder of their lives and perhaps the lives of their children, if they were feeling optimistic beyond that, Après moi, les déluges, or let the deluge happen, let the the storm happen. And the intro to this talks about, without looking at your phone, how many countries are there in the world? Not sure. The answer is about 200, more or less. Now think about ahead, the year 2050, 2150. How many will there be then? More than 200? Fewer? What if there were 1,000 countries? Or only 20? What about two or one? What kinds of futures would these maps suggest? What if everything depended on the answer? The person posing this brought this thought experiment in 2009 was 41-year-old venture capitalist Peter Thiel. Having made a small fortune by founding PayPal and investing early in Facebook, he had just taken a huge hit in the financial crisis the year before. He now had one thing in his mind, how to escape from the tax-collecting democratic state. In quoted uh, Peter Thiel, I am no longer, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible, he wrote. The great task for libertarians is to find an escape from politics in all its forms. The more countries there were, the more possible places to take your money, and the less likely any country would be able to raise taxes for fear of spooking the goose that laid the golden egg. If you want to increase freedom, he said, we want to increase the number of countries. One of the things we did both with Newsies actually really brought it out well and looking at the pictures of <clears throat> that era side by side, incredible. And this is one of the things that um, industrialization did to its own detriment was to have people see inequality that close, right? And I th think that that's part of where organizing and resistance comes from, seeing those things 
right in your neighborhood. And it's a little more um, challenging, I think, in, and maybe not in rural Vermont that is present, but it's so well hidden. People know who's rich in our community and who's not, um, but they don't see it in such extremes like you might see um, Pulitzer's giant mansion where he, you know, could be never see a poor person, um, but right below on his first floor, the same block, there might be somebody living under, you know, under a, a railroad or something. And so it's a little harder, I think, to see here in some ways. <clears throat> Neighboring towns like Grafton, which is its own little incorporated places, uber wealthy, but it's hard to get to, right? And I know like in DC and other places, it's somewhat increasingly harder, or maybe it's been that way to kind of access those, uh, you know, super wealthy places or they're well hidden, it feels like. And so this was uh, a couple of these things help kind of connect eras and when they're right side by side and seeing that inequality, it becomes really sharper and clearer, easier to see. This really reminds me of the connection and the parallels I'm seeing here in Georgia in the rural areas. Mm. I've been spending some time up in rural northern Georgia. And one of the towns I just went to is called Tacoa, which this is also interesting. Tacoa comes from a Cherokee word, and that word means beautiful. Mm. Tacoa, Georgia is a small town that is like in the valley of the southern Appalachian range. And I went up there because I was going to interview or I went to interview a nurse at a methadone clinic. And I came into the town a little bit early and I really love rural parts. And I think I miss Vermont. And it's like, (laughs) I I just like love rural U.S. And I was like, oh, this in my head, this town is so cute. It's so little and it's so sleepy. And then I'm noticing also at the same time, there's a lot of closed storefronts. And I went into a little diner and this woman was super sweet. She gives me a free coffee and like, I walk out. Anyway, I go into this interview. One of the first things I say is, this place is so cute. It, and and the, the woman says to me, yeah, this town is a real sleepy rural town, but there's an underbelly of this. That there's so much violence, but it's invisible. Mm. And I sort of laughed and I said, I just said something that I myself critique. <laughs> like I just fell into it. I fall into it again and again, because Vermont is also so beautiful. And there's also this parallel between these are places of, of tourism where people come and like, consume that beauty yeah and so same with northern georgia areas and with like the hiking and the appalachia and all that and um often and we were talking about this like often those people working to maintain and like reproduce that beautiful rurality are people who are hardly getting paid they're like temporary jobs they're like super low income and all that is like Mm -hmm. hidden right yeah so it, yep. it is like those two parallels between the wealth and then, but what is maintaining that? We just went to, um, there was a social studies conference in <clears throat> Nashville and oh. the taxi driver was talking about how it was the most, uh, it was growing the most of any county in the country. Uh-huh. Um, and they had, I think there's 750,000 or 800,000 in Nashville. And they, in the next five years, they were planning for, um, over 2 million to live there. Um, 
And I said, wow. And I asked him where he lived. And he said he initially used to live in Nashville. And now he has to live for he and his wife to have a house, um, you know, way outside the the downtown or near Nashville. He has to, he moved to a suburb of Nashville. And, and he's, he seemed um, quite excited about the opportunity of that growth for him, even though it was moving him and making it unlivable to where he was formally brought up and, and being close to the town and stuff. But, and I don't know wages of taxi drivers. I can't imagine uh, there, there would be more profit, I guess, if he, um, to some extent by having more tourists there, but he's not going to be accessing really the, the boom that is offered by those things. So yeah. This to me is the thread. I feel like that you're doing a lot in your class with um, the immigration and just going back to what you began with this with Newsies and the industrial era is this thing is this saying that I know both of us have heard Jonike say many times is that you can't you can't have wealth without making people poor. Yeah. And that that one sentence is really important to understand. And that to me is the one of the key things in the number of things that we've talked about here. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard students like, I just want to be rich. I just want to make money at whatever it is. It doesn't matter. And so that that's a key thing. Right. Should I go ahead and read it? Yeah, let's listen. This is your last piece. Yeah. Yep. Right. And this is called, um, it's from Counterpunch. It's called From Guernica to Gaza, Rauf Halabe. And it says, to say that I was awed is an understatement. Standing in front of Picasso's 11 and a half foot by 25 and a half foot celebrated painting Guernica, one of the most sobering encounters I've had, <clears throat> this, the displeasure of experiencing. Displeasure because the massive composition's theme is revoltingly gruesome. Since that dastardly first of its kind waging of wars, nations have not learned to abide by and practice peaceful and harmonious existence. World War II was followed by wars in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, the Near East, Palestine, eight wars, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Libya, Ukraine, Yemen, and Gaza, to name but a few. And in each of these wars, massive bombings and aerial bombardment have been the weapon of choice, resulting in the death of millions of human beings. Aerial bombardment is brutal, heinous, and vicious. Aerial bombardment is the cowardly weapon of arrogant, fascistic, hegemonic, and egotistical maniacs. Aerial bombardment is the screen behind which powerful thugs hide to absolve themselves of crimes against humanity. Aerial wars, indiscriminate annihilation of mostly innocent civilians, reducing them to paupers and beggars, goes against every decent norm. For well over 35 years, I've been showing Guernica to my students, expounding on the painting's blending of a heinously ghoulish theme executed in the Cubist style on a never-seen-before massive scale. One of the world's most prominent museums, Madrid's Museo Reina Sofia, is finally home to this one-of-a-kind artistic expression, bearing witness to ghastly human depravity. On my last visit to Spain, some 12 years back, 
I spent well over an hour studying Picasso's ingenious blending of form and theme in monochromatic colors. Standing in front of the composition, I viewed it from every angle and I relived years of lecture, terms, phrases, descriptions, questions, answers, student response, uh, responses, opinions, and so much more. On April 27, 1937, mostly German and Italian warplanes conducted the first large-scale aerial bombardment on the town of Guernica. Nestled in northern Spain and with the complicity of Francisco Franco's Spain's fascist dictator, the Germans wanted to test their newly fabricated war machinery, the Nazi Luftwaffe planes and their newly designed bombs produced solely for the destruction on a massive scale. Because of its remoteness, Guernica was chosen as the perfect out-of-sight, out-of-mind target. Like today's Gaza, Guernica was reduced to massive rubble, shrouding innocent civilians whose flesh, blood, bones, and sinews cloaked the bleak landscape of rubble, rebar, and crater-sized apocalyptic destruction where once high-rise structures, streets, and alleyways existed and hospitals and ambulances, mosques, churches, and schools are being targeted deliberately and mercilessly. In response to this nightmarish bombing, Picasso isolated himself in a studio for a lengthy time and vetted his fury by working long hours and in isolation on what is perhaps the world's foremost artistic political statement. Here is what I see today in Picasso's composition. To the far right, is a Gaza woman holding her arms to the high heaven. She is screaming, pleading, imploring the gods for deliverance. At the top is a light accompanied by a hand holding a lamp as though to uh, shed light on this unfolding carnage. Call this the 90 plus journalists killed by the Israeli snipers and drones so as to draw a curtain on what God's chosen are doing in Gaza. Today's graveyard of children In addition to its military strength, Israel is adept at conducting its carnage under the cover of dark. And its political choking of U.S. media is adept at portraying it as the victim. To the top left, Netanyahu and company, along with Biden and company, prance bullishly over the devastation as they squash the emaciated mother holding on to her dead infant. How many white shrouds have to be buried (laughs) to appease the Hebraic God of revenge, and how many corpses have to be pulled out with bare hands from under the rubble, and how many tattered remains have to be placed in makeshift bags. Careful scrutiny of the foreground depicts newsprint, Picasso's manner of telling the world, I am Guernica, remember me, remember what heinous crimes you have committed. And the crushed supine figure holding onto a broken weapon represents trampled, crushed justice under the weight of brute force. It is worth noting that while Peter Paul Rubens, Pietro Bruegel, the Elder, and scores of mostly European artists have produced a massive volume of composition under the title Massacre of Innocence, a theme associated with Herod, the not-so-great king of Judea, and around the time of Christ's birth, Picasso's Guernica stands in a class of its own. It is not ironic that right around the time Christendom is about to celebrate the birth of its savior, the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer, the Israelis are raining down 2,000-pound bombs, some of them the awful phosphorus kind that vaporize their victims. To date, the equivalent of three Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombs have been dropped on a starved, 
thirsty, disoriented 2.3 million displaced citizenry? And could we say that to date, timed with with Christmas 2023, Israel has massacred over 8,000 innocent children and counting and the West, today's bastion of Christianity is abhorrently supportive and silent. Yes, in the last few years, fascism has slowly sneaked into our halls of justice, public spaces, our airways, and our digital formats. Joe, I am a Zionist to the core, Netanyahu's puppet and, apolog- and apologist, has draped himself in the Israeli flag and has fashioned and blazoned his tie, his shirt, his suit, and his rhetoric in the same style and rhetoric of Netanyahu, his alter ego and master. Um, on December 10th, 2023, Spain, the only Western nation with the moral fortitude to express this outrage at the Gaza carnage, held a solidarity event in the Basque city of Guernica's Market Square, the same square that was bombed by the Nazis and fascist forces way back in 1937. An aerial view depicts a massive Palestinian flag the size of it, the entire square in mosaic form, the tesserae of which were held by citizens, trade unionists, artists, anti-war and anti-fascist groups, along with a large depiction of Picasso's image depicting the mother, her child in her arms, crying to the high heavens. And for a whole minute, the sirens blazed in solidarity with Gaza's mothers and children. Viva España, viva Palestina. That's really powerful. Thanks for reading that in its entirety. Yeah, it's amazing. And my voice got a little hoarse reading it. Yeah, it's it's incredibly powerful. Uh, as as a as a teacher and as a father, as a, you know, all that. What are, I think I was would just love to hear any thoughts you have on sort of where we as a collective, we need to put our strength and courage these days and kind of going forth. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a big question, but it's also a really simple question. I feel like for me, I, I have to think about all the people around me and their um, health and well-being. And I think about um, simultaneously thinking about the health and well-being of everybody in our country and the world, and that both historically um, we can't, you know, forget these messages, and we can't forget our history, and forget um, the reoccurring themes and the the justifications and causes, and and continue to bring those to the forefront. Um, I think there's in my town. I mean, there I have I've always. Uh, since I've been teaching here, there's been at least one kid in every class who's couch surfing without a a place to live. I know that there's issues around, you know, kids not getting anything for say Christmas and um, other kids, you know, having a very, very different experience. And I, I, when we talk about immigration and um, I, I think that we have to have empathy and solidarity with, with, um, all of the people of the world and it's becoming um, the, the narrative and the push is um, to not do that, to have empathy with a, a select few, just like us. And my students uh, we're working hard to try to see that and get that and understand that we have connections and um, 
and similar experiences to so many of uh, these historical pieces that we see. So I guess I would say whatever you're doing, you know, me as a teacher, I'll do a particular thing and with my family and my kids and stuff, uh, how do we understand this world that we have? How are we like and connected to others? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also one of the things that I really take inspiration in in this moment is the immense amount of international solidarity that we've seen of the pouring out of people on the streets. And I just saw this just really beautiful video of uh, the South African um, legal team arriving in the airport in Johannesburg. Yeah. Yep. And yep. it is important. Like, I, I think that I was reading about exactly what could happen with this South African genocide case in that the ruling could take years, but they're asking for a provisional. And of course, like, even if, say, the court grants a provisional for an immediate ceasefire that Israel may do whatever it wants to do, like it's proved over and over again, the, just the massive like impunity <clears throat> for their Israeli state. At the same time, I think that it is so important to listen to the words that were said at that international court and that whatever happens, it's still really, really important to see that solidarity. Yeah. And I, I was talking to my dad about this the other day that I've never in my lifetime seen the support for Palestinians that I've seen an open support. And we took our kids to a support and protest in, in Burlington and, you know, having them ask why, why are these people here is a, is a unique thing, I think, and a, and a powerful thing. Mm. And I think I've never seen it. Um, you know, it's, it's been built by people who continue to resist over and over and over. Yeah. And that's, that, that inspires me greatly. Yeah. Yeah. Just to share one other story, because I think the kid piece is really, really sweet. Like what your kids asked and then sort of like, how do you explain things to kids? My sister who lives in Chicago, she has a three-year-old and they somehow caught themselves in like the end of a Chicago highway, like honking with all the Palestinian flags. Mm -hmm. One of those things that we've seen a number mm -hmm. of times in big cities. And so Carol and my sister joined in on it and was honking on and her three-year-old from the back said, mama, why are we honking? And I said, what did you, what did you say to him? And she said, we're honking in support of, because some people are doing some very bad things to other people. And I, and I just thought that was like, it's like heartbreaking. Also so sweet. It's like, there's a lot of people that are just turning away from it, but yeah. I think it's important, like that this is our world, right? <laughs> and to to have your kids and be able to explain things to kids in different ways at different ages is so, is really important. Yeah, and there's in small towns like, how do I justify to my kids school? Like, why are we talking about Israel Palestine in the context of immigration and migration? And mm. um, there's a completely direct link and uh, not only that we've had 
Palestinian students come as exchange students and they mm. <clears throat> they know, you know, students have lived there, but also um, an, an immigrant and immigration experience. And we uh, there's there's a long historical link of uh, uh, Muslim and, and Arab communities in Vermont. Um, mm. And so I, and I, get, I mean, there's so many other kind of connections into uh, why we why this matters to us. Um, and the students are starting to get it and I'm starting to get it better and, and mm. help to understand it and explain it more too. And I hope my kids deeply understand it and decide what they want to do about it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And actually if I just, since let me add just my own poem and then we'll end here, but I'm just thinking you and I are, are recording this. It's not, it's not a poem. It's just a quote from Martin Luther King. And of course we're, recording this right now on Martin Luther King Day and I saw yeah. this uh it just what you said reminded me of what I had put up so this is from this is just a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1967 Beyond Vietnam speech and he said uh these are the times for real choices and not false ones we are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line. If our nation is to survive its own folly, every man of humane conviction, convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions, but we must all protest. Yep. Chris, thank you so much for, for sharing uh, both what you're doing in, in schools and you know, with your own kids and, and bringing in those pieces today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish here? No, thank you. I think um, this is really important and it's, it it's, um, helps to clarify thinking as we share our ideas back and forth. And I look forward to the, the full kind of podcast around this and yeah, um, doing it again and again. All right, everyone, that is it for Indigo Radio today. Thanks to Chris Liebensee for the conversation today. And we're going to go out with a song from Newsies because we talked about it and we found out that I used to watch that over and over with my sisters, actually. Newsies, The World Will Know. Loved that movie when I was a kid. And it came out in 1992 historical musical drama. It was based on the New York City Newsboys strike of 1899. And Chris had showed this movie to his class as he taught his students about the industrial era. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Again, the links to the readings that Chris shared will be in the show notes. Pulitzer and Hearst have to respect our rights. Hey, listen, Pulitzer and Heist have to respect the rights of the Waking Boys of New York. That's right. Well, that went pretty good, so what else? Tell them that they can't treat us like we don't exist. Pulitzer and Heist, they think we're nothing. Are we nothing? Stick together like the trolley workers and they can't break us up. Pull a turn, Hurst. They think they got us. Do they got us? No! We're a union now, the newsboys union. We have to start acting like a union. Even 
no, we ain't got hats or badges. We're a union just by saying so. And the world will know. What's stop someone else from selling our pay? Well, we'll talk with them. Some of them don't hear so good. Well, then we'll soak them. No, we can't beat up kids in the street. It'll give us a bad name. Can't get any worse. What's it gonna take to stop the wagons? Are we ready? Yeah! No! Take the stop the scabbers, can we do it? Yeah! We'll do what we gotta do until we break the will of Mighty Bill and Joe. And the world will go. And the journal too. There's the horse and pull, it's all that we got nose for you. Now the world will hear what we've got to say. Hawking headlines, but we're making up today. And our rights will grow. And we'll kick their rear. <laughs> and the world will know that we've been here. That's right, that's what the world thing he is anyway. Yeah. Nobody's gonna mess with the newsy. When the circulation bell starts ringing, will we hear it? No! What if a Delancey come out swinging? Will we hear it? No! Pull it to me, crack the whip, buddy, won't whip us. Crack the whip, 